Thank you for listening to We Have Ways of Making You Talk. Sign up to our Patreon to receive bonus content, live streams and our weekly newsletter with money off books and museum visits as well. Plus early access to all live show tickets. That's patreon.com slash we have ways. I'm Anthony Scaramucci, former White House Director of Communications and Wall Street financier. And I'm Katty Kay, U.S. Special Correspondent for BBC Studios. I've been covering American politics for almost three decades. Welcome to The Rest is Politics U.S., brought to you by Goalhanger. Go on, tell us, were those donations you made, like Obama in 2008, was that idealism? Were you hoping to get something out of these campaigns that would serve your own business interests, for example? So I think this will either make this podcast incredibly successful, Caddy, or people <laughs> will be horrified and they'll shut it off right now because I'm going to be very real with you. The Obama donation, I had gone to law school with President Obama. We were not classmates. I was a few years ahead of him. It was 2007. He was then Senator Obama. I had a check in my breast pocket. I went over to the senator. I said, Senator, I said, you and I didn't really know each other in law school, but I'm about to hand you a big check. Can I lie to my friends and tell them that you and I knew each other in law school? (laughs) Well, Obama looks at me, had the best smile in American politics since Jack Kennedy. Forever. Yeah. He lights up. He looks at me and says, I'll tell you what, if you double the amount of the check, we'll take it back to Hawaii. Okay. And I looked at him. I said, you're done. I had another check in my pocket. I ripped it up. I doubled the amount of the check. And I'm going to tell you right now, I've been to more White House Christmas parties during the Obama administration than the Trump administration. In this pivotal year for the United States, democracy and world affairs, Britain's biggest podcast, The Rest is Politics, is launching stateside. Uncovering secrets from inside the Biden and Trump inner circles and how they shape the world's most important economy, but also the global economy too. New episodes are released every Friday morning. Just search The Rest is Politics US wherever you get your podcasts. Acton, Acton, welcome to We Have Ways of Making You Talk with me, James Holland. And um, I haven't got my normal sidekick, Al Murray, here today, who's gone AWOL. He's headed north on a, on a secret uh, mission. Uh, but I am joined by Paul Dixon, um, who has written a brilliant book called The Rise of the GI Army, 1940 to 1941. And this is a fascinating book, because, and it's something that I'm personally particularly interested in, this whole idea that, that, that America starts a war very small in terms of kind of global scale, and particularly in terms of its army. Um, because we always think of the US Army in, in World War II as being this sort of huge kind of machine um, that, that after Pearl Harbor, it, it kind of sort of arrives fully formed as the arsenal of democracy. But of course, nothing could be the truth. And, and Paul, you know, what I find just so fascinating is just how small it is in September 1939. It's number 17 in the world after Portugal, and it's it's in dismal shape. Uh, three years earlier, um, Chief of Staff uh, Douglas McCarthy actually said that the army was so small that it could fit in Yankee Stadium, which is one of the larger baseball stadiums in, in New York City. But um, it was, and it was a mess. Uh, if you join, if you enlisted in the United States Army in the in the nineteen mid to, or in the nineteen thirties, 
uh, you would be paid $21 a month. Uh, but if you, wanted a, a, if you wanted a rifle that actually worked, if you wanted one that was calibrated and one that had been cleaned and properly restored uh, to, to combat order, you had to buy it from the army. And this to me was the great metaphor, and it was over $200. So you had to buy it for months, you know, it's paid for it over months and months and months. If you didn't want to buy a rifle, they gave you some hunk of junk, and you had to figure out how to make it, calibrate it, get it all set to go again, clean it, um, and, and get it up to combat uh, readiness, which is very difficult, very difficult. And so I, I just use that as a, me a metaphor for all the things that were really wrong. The bases were, they had no money, so if you had the second army, and a piece of the, one piece of the second army was over you know, in Massachusetts, and another part of the, the uh, second army was in New York State, there was, no there was no money to transport them to get together for maneuvers. It was, th it was that bad. And, um, and the t morale was just terrible, and uh, it, it was a very difficult, a bit difficult thing. So that's September 1st, 1939. Um, I was born a month earlier, so that's one of, part of my interest in all this. I was born 31 days before uh, the, the Nazis invaded Poland. And, it, it's, and, and September 1st is also the day George C. Marshall uh, is, becomes the uh, chief of staff of the United States Army. And he's, he's, he becomes a very important person, um, especially in Europe and, and across the ocean, because he's, you know... Yeah, well, he's chief is off the whole of the whole of World War Two, isn't he? But but why why is the um, U.S. Army in such a parlous state? I mean, partly obviously it's, it's it's because of isolationism, but there is that kind of after the kind of Treaty of Versailles, there is this kind of sort of inward looking, isn't there? In uh, uh, in America, there's this change of tack, and there is this idea that somehow kind of big business benefited from the kind of blood of American souls on in in northern France on the Western Front in 1917 and. You know, there's this kind of, sort of inward-looking idea, and there's also this thing that, that, of course, if you have a large army, a large armed forces, you tend to use it. Whereas, obviously, if you don't, if you don't have one, you don't use it. And I guess that's there's some truth in that. Isn't yeah, there? I mean, and the other thing about the army itself was the um, it, it, it was there was not a popular idea. There were people, that, even the American Legion in the late 30s was going to war again. I mean, there was they, they really a lot of really people who were really had been drawn into a war we shouldn't have gotten into. And there was still... This is still, the First World War. First World War. And there was still a lot of evidence of this, of what had you know, happened. Even when I was a little kid, there were still... I remember my parents had friends, uh, elder, elderly friends, who had been... Uh, who were still spraying their throats with, with um, some sort of medicine because they'd been gassed. And there were, there were amputees on the streets from left over. You'd see them on crutches. And so it was, it, was, it was still a visible presence, yet Europe and, and uh, was so abstract to many Americans at that point, unless they'd come from there to, you know, live here, uh, uh, immigrating. And the other thing was, there was a great prejudice, even among the isolationists, in favor of a strong Navy. Roosevelt himself had been Deputy Secretary of the Navy at one point. He favored the Navy. He was a real Navy guy. And, um, and the isolationists believed that... The, that, that that really, I really wanted is a coastal army, an army that could withhold, you know, hold the coasts, and a really strong navy on either coast. So if there was a two ocean war or whatever we were, were going to get into, we could we could re remain a, apart from it because of a very strong navy. 
So, and the navy is quite strong in 1939. Yeah, that isn't is, it? and and the other thing is, the navy. I'll talk about it later, but there was a purge of officers right before Pearl Harbor of senior officers who were inefficient or alcoholic or couldn't leave their men, etc. If you were in the navy, um, there was no need for a purge because uh, the officers, if they didn't know how to control a ship, if they they would they would they would run aground. They would. They were on display every hour of the day where they were at sea as to whether or not they were, they were capable. So the Navy purged as it went along. Um, and that became, you know, that, that, so it was a much stronger entity. But, but, but with the Army, you've, you've got none of that, have you? I mean, the officer class is, is, is pretty dismal, isn't it, in 1939 for the most part? Yeah, it is. I mean, is, you've got some very talented guys, obviously, but, but, yeah. but kind of particularly that junior level, it's, it's, it's pretty wanting. Well, the, the other thing was, what was coming along was an amazing deal was made in, in uh, when Roosevelt came into office, he wanted this thing called the Civilian Conservation Corps. Yeah, the CCC. Which was to rebuild America, was to replant the Dust Bowl, to build parks, to build trails, to build golf courses, to, to, to plant, you know, millions of, I think they planted three million trees to reforest the country. And... Um, when Rose, this was Roosevelt's pet project. When he came in, he said to um, uh, he didn't have anybody to lead it. He, he wanted he envisioned hundreds of thousands of young men in this in this tree army. He called it, and um, he went to MacArthur, who was then chief of staff, and he said, "Could you, could you guys, with the army, run this tree army?" And 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 MacArthur said, "No, no, you can't do that." And um, he said, "If you want me to run the CCC, I need those guys to run the CCC." So he saves, in the process, he saves Patton, MacArthur, I mean, I'm sorry, Patton, Eisenhower, uh, Mark Clark, Omar Bradley, I mean, right up and down the line. And immediately these guys, Marshall is immediately sent in to run these camps. And it runs camps on either coast and gets this phenomenal sort of lesson in how to lead men without punishment. In other words... If you had a, the, the CCC was organized like a like an army a unit, but you couldn't punish them. If if you, if you told a CCC guy to pick up the cigarette butt he'd thrown on the ground and he said no I won't do it, the army guy you'd go to the brig. If you would disobey the officer and the CCC, if they, it would just the guy would say hey I'm going home <laughs> you can't punish. So he had to, he had to learn this whole business of dealing with his men and going to bat for them and and and, and teaching them sort of a work ethic. And teaching them a discipline, so so that was that was one of the things. A, a discipline where they're buying into that—that's the point, isn't it? Right, right. And I mean, if you fast forward to the piece of the book that's about the CCC, if you fast forward, um, the CCC creates these 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 guys who who are now disciplined. They've had their teeth fixed, which was no small thing in those days because of the the, the depression and the lack of. Of money uh, and, the, and the poor for you know for dental health and such, and and they're basically they understand the work ethic, they understand a day's work, they understand discipline, they understand formations, they they have this concept, and so what happens is uh, when the war comes along, they become the they they become the the non commissioned officers, they become the they're the backbone. Mark Clark says after the war that those CCC guys became. Really, the, the, the non-commissioned officers all the way through the army, and those who didn't, many of those who didn't, end up being ended up being the foremen, 
and the, and the work stewards and such at the at these defense plants that were producing aircraft and such because they had this well i remember when i was uh, when i was interviewing american veterans of the north africa campaign literally every other one had been in the ccc yeah. i mean it was amazing yeah. i mean all those guys in tukor in, in tunisia yeah i mean and, loads of them have been in the ccc and i remember into um i got to know very well these two identical twins called um uh tom and henry bowles uh and they were in the big red one they're in the first infantry division uh, but they'd been in the CCC beforehand. You know, they were they were just kind of poor kids from from Alabama whose mum had died. You know, mother had died when they were young, and then then their dad had tried to kind of bring them up on his own. And it just seemed the obvious thing to do to go off and join the army. But they joined the CCC first. You know, and then yeah, and it was it was a salvation. I mean, you, you can still if you when you travel around America, you can still find you can still find picnic groves and parks. Where the CCC built picnic tables and fi outdoor fireplaces and you know <laughs> barbecue pits and things and um, the mountain trails all over America they were they they built these mountain trails so so that was that was a a, a thing that had that really happened it really changed Marshall Marshall really learned the essence of dealing with men and he proves it and dealing with that. a future conscript army because the point about a conscript army is they're conscripts you know they're not there because they want to be they're there because you know they've got to be and that's a different thing and so how do you get get someone from a from a democratic western nation how do you get them to be willing to go and fight up some ghastly mountain in the apennines in italy for example i mean you know it, it's it's a really hard thing and it's amazing that this is where the origins of that are, isn't it? Yes. You know, in the CCC and these projects and, and, and people like Marshall kind of getting a, getting to grips with this. And, you know, I just jumped one more tiny little metaphor or idea from the from the from the CCC was that Marshall. One of the things he learned about these kids that he was bringing, I mean, kids, literally, um, th that he brought in were was the, the tremendous impact that film had on the movies. And the movies and getting them ready, they made special movies about planting trees and about this and about everything. And they would show them, you know, popular Hollywood type movies as well. But but he realized the importance of film on on, on morale and on on coherent force. One of the thing, brilliant things that Marshall does before Pearl Harbor is he recruits Frank Capra, probably the greatest greatest filmmaker of, of his time, of, of, of the, of the pre-war period. I mean, worldwide, probably the greatest single uh, filmmaker. And he recruits him to make propaganda films for the Army. And was a, he made a series of films, which you can look up today on YouTube, called Why We Fight. And that was the, those that he knew right away. He understood all this stuff right away about dealing with these men as he built this army. And that was just one one tiny little piece of it, but revealing. Uh, and also, I mean, you know, we're talking about the army, but we're also should, should just mention the Army Air Corps, yeah. um, as it yeah. was in 1939, which obviously becomes the U.S. Army Air Force and later the U.S. Air Force. But 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 I mean, that is also absolutely titchy, isn't it? In 1939, I think I think the day that Germany goes into Poland, I think. USA has something like 74 fighter planes and oh, oh it's a dreadful mess and even even fast forward to later on in, in even when you get to a major portion of what I wrote about which is the Louisiana maneuvers these monstrous maneuvers which we'll get to in a second but but even then even when they get to Louisiana a couple months before Pearl Harbor the Army Air Corps and the 
the, the, the Army Air Corps and aviation don't talk to each other. They're not, they're not even on the same radio frequencies. They can't even do operations together. I mean, there's this totally random sort of, you know, development of these two groups without any coherence. And the men themselves, even, even months before Pearl Harbor, when they're in maneuvers, they still, it takes them weeks and weeks to get it through their heads that when, the, when a plane comes overhead, you're supposed to take cover. And it, even then, the men were running out with, you know, they'd have Kodak Brownie cameras. They'd run out the, you know, the, the attacking aircraft and the maneuvers were coming out to, you know, drop flower bags on them and, and you know, attack them. The guys, are, they'd run out and, and snap, take snapshots of the plane. So all of this had to be developed before the United States could go into North Africa. All of this sort of skill. With a citizen army, this was not a professional army. This was an army of conscripts and volunteers. So, Paul, I mean, the the, the strategic earthquake, obviously, is, is the fall of France, isn't it, really, in, in May and June 1940, and then suddenly... Um, you've got this situation where Roosevelt suddenly realises that the Atlantic is not the kind of barrier that it once was and, and things need to kind of move very, very quickly. So there is this sudden kind of input of cash. But I mean, I you know, I find it absolutely amazing that in those interwar years, I mean, America has almost entirely stopped producing kind of TNT, for example. I mean, it's incredible. You know, there's if you really measure it out, it, it's exactly 494 days between September 1st, 1939, the invasion of Poland and Pearl Harbor. Yeah. And so you go from this, you know, and, and w during this period, even forgetting the armaments and the, and the munitions and such, but if, but if you just look at that army, it goes from this tiny, tiny army to an army of over 1.2 million, the night of Pearl Harbor. And, um, and I think the, 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 the key points here, I think, in, in allowing that to happen was a civilian, which very few Americans, let alone people overseas, have ever heard of, is, is a guy named Grenville Clark, who was this very idealistic, very wealthy lawyer, um, who had worked very diligently in World War One to to a, create a series of um, schools for co taking college graduates and turning them into junior officers, and um, just as Literally early in, in nineteen in, in nineteen forty or even earlier, he and he and he had envisioned this two ocean war a month years ahead of even it's happening. He saw this great peril on either uh, for either of either ocean, and he's the first one to really step up and say, "We need a civilian draft. We need a civilian draft." Uh, when he starts it, he's very shrewd. He he recruits a, a committee of one hundred. Very, very influential people, retired generals, heads of major universities, the top guy at the New York Times, etc., etc., and puts this group together and starts lobbying for a draft. And he's immediately, uh, Roosevelt doesn't like the idea, as opposed to it. Roosevelt won't even, won't even use the word um, uh, a draft he, or, or selective service. He'll only say muster, which sounds like something in the Revolutionary War where people yes. come out with muskets or you know, a muster or something. And, and, and Marshall was not keen. Marshall thought he could raise a huge army of volunteers by making the army more attractive. But he right. realized pretty quickly, but in the meantime, Clark starts this machine of, of creating this draft. And he uses the most extraordinary PR tactics, public relations tactics. He takes, 
the guy who had been the head of public relations for the New York World's Fair in 1939, uh, and, and, we, and he becomes the PR guy for the draft, and they go all around America, and they go on radio stations and local newspapers, and they're pushing, pushing, pushing. And, and one of his lines is, Clark has several lines, one of which is, if Britain falls, the culture, the cu our culture falls with it. The culture of Shakespeare and Dickens and all the rest of it dies with, and it's replaced by this Germanic culture. We, that was a, to appeal to sort of one level. The other level, he said, look, if, 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 Germany, if France and Germany, I mean, France and uh, Great Britain fall and the rest of Europe falls and the Scandinavian countries fall, it's just a matter of time until the Nazis create this huge uh, armada, which will come right up the Potomac River, take Washington, go to Baltimore, Philadelphia, and the New York, and basically take over the country. And so, so he re he gets this back. He gets the uh, moves sl very slowly. Finally, Roosevelt is at the last minute. Roosevelt gives his approval to it. Uh, Marshall comes around, and and he gets the legislation through. And they immediately go to a registration. This mammoth registration, like nothing that's ever occurred before in America. Sure. Every 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 man of a certain age has to register. They could be a they could be a quadriplegic. They could be in a mental hospital. They could be in maximum security prison. They had to register, and everybody registers. Rockefellers, Vanderbilts, Roosevelts, everybody. The head of the New York Stock Exchange, they all register, and then. Uh, they go through various uh, procedures of, 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 you know, making sure they're eligible and so on, and then they start the draft. So, at what point? Is, so, at what point is Grenville Clark kind of really starting this campaign? Um, he's really start. He really starts it in um, in in early uh, nineteen forty. He really starts in early 1940. So this starts, is before this is before the fall of France. Yeah, before the fall of France, and um, it was it finally pay, gets it and he gets it in. Um, it gets passed in September. It takes a long time to get it passed, but it, but he's pushing, pushing. It's called the Burke Wadsworth Act, um, and it and it passes pretty clearly. Uh, the isolations don't prevail at this point. And by October of 1940, October 1940, October 16th, they're registering the, the track. And um, then uh, shortly thereafter, shortly thereafter, they start, they start uh, drafting them. And it's a huge, it's a monumental moment because they start drafting hundreds of thousands at a clip. Yeah, and this happens um, before the November election, right? Yeah, yeah. And, and Roosevelt is very concerned that he's going to have... Um, they start pulling numbers out of a out of a out of a out of a, out of a fishbowl, and and people, you know your number came up. And what happened was uh, there was there was it, it, when I I kept looking for the resistance. There's been more resistance in World War One. There's more resistance now in America to wear masks that <laughs> because of the COVID. There's more yeah. than I mean there was the, there was the religious groups. Uh, that they, they were always, always uh, anti-war, and 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 they were given a special status, and there were, but there was a few seminarians. The number of people there who really protested. Now the number of people who, who, who grumbled and and moaned and groaned about it were were huge, but everybody. And again, the, the, the draft comes. The Roosevelt, there's there's a Vanderbilt, there's a Rockefeller, 
the head of the, the same head of the New York Stock Exchange is drafted, and and it goes up and down. The, there's there's very very few exemptions. If you were if you were if you were a supervisor in an aircraft carrier, you have an exemption. But if you were a, a, a the head of the largest law firm in Washington, no no dice, you you went. Um, and this and this Marshall once he gets these guys, and he's building this citizen's army. He's got these huge problems because. These are people who are, you know, yanked out of jobs as barbers and bankers and butchers and whatever, and with girlfriends and the whole deal and and you know a nice job and a nice car, and and they're thrown into into these godforsaken bases, many of which are left over in the far west from from the Indian Wars and and in the, some of the most difficult parts of the South. Uh, in, in I mean, the, upsca the upscaling, Paul, is, is on such a gargantuan level, isn't it? Yeah. And so fast. I mean, it's it's hard to sort of get one's head around it, really. I mean, because, you, you know, if, you, if your army is already in a pile of state and suddenly you've got all these people that have been drafted, you've got you've got to find camps for them. You've got to find uniforms and equipment. And But it's not just that. You've got to feed them. You've got to shower them. You've got to kind of keep them, keep them healthy. I mean, it, it's... It's a huge task, isn't it? It is. And, and, and the biggest task that Marshall was faced with was the morale. Because it'd send somebody to one of these bases, it'd be in the middle of nowhere, and it might be in the Bible Belt, where they didn't allow... You could, in town, you could not watch a movie on Sunday. You could not dance in public. There was no dancing. There was no this. And they're sending me all these people, including a lot of urban, northern urban people, and, uh, into these bases... And uh, there's no swimming pool. If they're real lucky, there's a movie theater, sort of like Ersatz movie theater. But they've got this huge morale problem. Marshall himself becomes so cognizant of it. There's one point, and I've discovered this one uh, two-day period. He gets on a plane in civilian clothes, goes to one of these southern bases, and goes to the nearby town and wanders through the town, talks. He's, he's in civilian clothes. Here's the ch chief of staff talking to these guys. And he realizes he's got to get them. He's got to get them out in the field. If an army in camp, an army in a camp is a is a demoralized army. They get yeah. up in the morning, they drill for two and a half hours. They you know have a, a lesson or something. They drill for a little bit more. Three o'clock they can do when they want. They go back and read comic books. They, they, but they, they but they they have there's no sense in the whole thing. And he that's when he comes up and there are a whole lot of reasons. But one of the reasons was that he comes up with the maneuvers. So beginning in the spring of 1941, he starts these massive, massive maneuvers. Sure. Um, they, and and they, they go through the South. And, and um, uh, they, they start in, in uh, Tennessee, mm -hmm. in the mountains of Tennessee. And all of these maneuver areas replicate some potential war zone. Um, like the Tennessees would sort of replicate northern northern Europe more or less, et cetera. Right. And then they move down to Louisiana, the swampy, almost desert, you know, jungle-like yep. wilds of Louisiana, where wild boar and poisonous snakes are, and and, yep. and, uh, and alligators and what have you. Allig all the whole deal. And then, yeah. And then they end up in the Carolinas, and they and they end up the Carolinas. In, in the in the fall, going right up to two weeks before Pearl Harbor, and and the logistics of this are yeah. beyond belief. I mean, yeah. you 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 put seven hundred thousand men 
into these maneuvers. In Louisiana alone, there's over half a million people uh, of, of men. And, 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 and in the, ar the army, these, this doesn't include the people who, you know, drove the trucks that brought the, the eggs and the water in. But um, they were, they were going th in Louisiana, they were going through two million eggs a day. And they were going it's through amazing, huge, isn't it? They had, and they had trucks, and, uh, huge trucks outfitted with cobblers shoemakers who would go there and repair boots on the scene. I mean, they, they, they created this huge logistic thing. Water in Louisiana was in, was not potable, so you had truck, you had oil tankers filled with water, like a huge pipeline coming out of Texas yep. into Louisiana yeah, yeah, to yeah. give them water. Eisenhower says later that, that, that after the war, he said, we could never, the United States could never move through Europe uh, as it had without the maneuvers to teach them all about the logistics, all about... Oh, sure. Absolutely. I mean, you know, I've been recently writing about the Sicilian campaign. What's amazing about that is there is this moment where 7th Army are given sort of, you know, a free hand to go and clear the western part of Sicily. And, you know, 7th Army is the first field army to be put into the field in World War Two. I mean, there have been divisions and, you know, organisations elsewhere in Philippines and so on. But But... As a, as a U.S. Army, the 7th Army is the first to go into kind of action as an army. And between the, the 19th and the 23rd of July, it absolutely proves its mettle. Uh, and, you know, it, there's not much opposition in terms of kind of fighting. But in terms of an exercise in logistics, it's absolutely second to none. And they pull it off with bells on. And, I'm, and, and you know, who's commanding 7th Army? But, but General George Patton, who, of course, massively earns more spurs during the Louisiana maneuvers, you know, and so so he understands what he's doing, and yeah. you know it is it is it's not just enough in World War Two to have a little bit of tactical chutzpah. What you really need to do is understand that kind of operational level of how it all works and how it all fits together and how you supply and how you keep that that long tail, which is such a feature of the kind of Allied way of war in World War Two. How you keep that going, and you know it's fascinating that the for, for the U.S. Army. This is where it's all kind of worked out to start off with. And, 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 and you, you, know, you mentioned Patton, right? And Patton, Patton is one, I mean, he does amazing things. One of the things he does in the maneuvers, he, he cheats. In other words, there's one, one point where they're, his army, towards the end of the Louisiana maneuvers, is supposed to, in this mammoth exercise, supposed to take Shreveport, Louisiana, the city of Shreveport. And instead of going front on and, and, and confronting the, the enemy, the, the um, you know the blue army, red army, he he goes, he makes his massive end run through Texas, and he pumps gas into the tanks. You know the the tanks were using regular gas station service station gasoline, pumps shells out his own money to buy gasoline, comes all the way around the, the back, operates right at night, very dangerous stuff. Years later in Europe. When he's going in to save the 101st Airborne, he says he tell he writes a letter to one of the the guys, one of the newspaper guys in Louisiana. He said, "All this he learned all of these tactics, like running at night without lights, doing all this stuff, all yep. this daring stuff in Louisiana. He that's where he learned to do all this stuff. And 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 in the actual maneuvers, after he does this attack, you know, by going through Texas, going around through Texas, out of Louisiana. Yeah, yeah." Um, He's, the, the judges declare, and this is, no, this is, you know, you cheated, this is, he's disqualified, he loses. But there's huge amounts of press there, radio and, and, and uh, newspaper people and stuff. 
And of course, they are dazzled by this, they, and they, they, they declare him the winner. And everybody knows he's the winner, but, and, and the, one of the staff says later, he, said, he says about Hitler, I mean, that uh, Patton was cheating. He said, well, Hitler's going to cheat, you know. That was yeah, the, yeah, yeah. And the other thing, I, yeah. what it really was a revelation to me was realizing that, that, that Patton's units were almost entirely built of citizen soldiers. They were yeah. guys, and he loved them. Patton loved them, and he he had this. I mean, he saw them. They would they would see a truck or a tank or a jeep or a air piece of aircraft, and they would immediately want to go under the under the hood. Immediately want to go in. They were tinkerers. They'd grown up with Model T Fords and Model A Fords, and these guys, these World War II guys, were they they, they were born tinkerers. They loved to noodle around with the engines of these vehicles. The other thing was they could read maps, which sounds like a, 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 a silly little thing, but World War One, the, the ability of the average guy to read a map was, was very, was not great. And all of a sudden these guys had grown up on road maps, they understood topography, they understood distance, they understood a whole lot of things that was, were not true of a previous army, just because they'd grown up in an automotive age. Um, so it, it was, it was to me, that part of it was the most fascinating in a way because the degree that these guys were not these guys were not meant to be they, they were not you know they were not a, a an army of, of of professional army. Yeah, I know it's 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 amazing, isn't it? And um, but just to, Paul, just explain exactly how how the Louisiana maneuvers kind of, you know, what, what, what does that mean? You know, I mean, I know you've got a red army and a green uh, and a, and a blue army, but 700,000 men, whatever it was. I mean, how, how does that work? I mean, what are they actually doing? Cause I do remember talking to some guys who were involved in that and saying, you know, that the planes were dropping kind of bags of, of uh, flour on them. They only had wooden rifles and all this kind of stuff. I mean, it's just amazing, isn't it really? It is, but but they but they learned to work as a coherent units. And uh, uh, one example, for example, when they start in, uh, when they're first in Tennessee, uh, the time it takes them to lay a pontoon bridge across a river, a raging river, for that matter, is a matter of days. And as they go along, as they go along, the ability to do lay a bridge goes from days to down to hours. And, and so it's that kind of thing. It's the kind of thing of how do you feed these guys? How do you, how do you set up a mess tent? How do you do all the things you're going to need? So the fact of the matter, if the rifles were wooden and the, and the, and the, and the firing of the rifles were, were theoretical, it, it, that wasn't the most important thing. It was learning how to communicate. It was learning how to go from pigeons to walkie-talkies. And I start to use the, you know, the light aircraft, like the Piper Cubs, which were very instrumental in, in, in all during the war, it, it, you know, to carry messages, to do certain errands and things. So, and they tested new equipment down there. There was a thing called the Marston mat, which was this perforated aluminum uh, piece of equipment you would lay out, you could lay out anywhere in the world, in the jungle, wherever, and create yep. an airfield where you could land and, and, and uh, launch aircraft. Yeah, it's and, genius, and, isn't it? Yeah. And so there was a lot of that stuff going on. And it was also, it was a great time for Marshall, from a distance, to see the officers who couldn't do, cut it in, in Louisiana and, and the uh, Carolinas. And that's when... Yeah, I know, absolutely. I, and you're, so you're separating the kind of sort of wheat from the chaff a little bit, aren't you? 
Yeah, and that's when his famous purge, uh, I mean, not so famous, but his, his, his purge, of course, is September, October of 41. At the same time, he's raising Eisenhower from Colonel, uh, he's raising all these younger, the ones he knows are going to win the war for him. Yeah, uh, and, and, and Clark, and Clark um, does well, doesn't he? Mark Clark does well in the Louisiana maneuvers. Yes, and, and so does Omar Bradley, and so does Grunther, yep. and there are a whole bunch of them. And um, uh, so, so, and that's when he decides to do the run the purge. So then he's elevating these guys in the very fall of, of, of 41. He's elevating these guys and recognizing them. Because don't forget, he's got Eisenhower. And they're all in their 40s as well, aren't they? I mean, they're all in their, they're pretty much all in their 40s, right, right. late 40s. So they're the, the perfect age to kind of take up, take on the mantle of kind of sort of higher command once the right. once the US is in the war proper. And he doesn't break capable. He's only met Eisenhower once in a receiving line. He's been re reading reports, he's been talking to people about him. But he brings he has Eisenhower in Washington two weeks after Pearl Harbor in the War Plans Division. So he's got him, all these people moving and, and the purge is happening at the same time. What's interesting about the purge is during the war H. G. Wells is writing about the who we think of it in terms of science fiction and such, but Wells was a student scholar of war, and, and Wells does say, writes an article saying that one of the problems was that the, that, uh, the Europeans, the exception of the Nazi, but the, the French and the British and others, um, never had a purge. And they, they never got rid of those guys who were in the army because of the, went to the right school or something, right, and right. they weren't necessarily the best officer. And he said the brilliance of, of, of Marshall was the purge. And um, it, it, it's fascinating to see, to see how he does everything during the war. I mean, I, I went to this writing, uh, researching this era um, uh, with great respect for Marshall, but I, there are things that he did. There's one moment at which he wants to create an officer candidate school. He wants to make yeah. Omar Bradley in charge of an officer candidate school in which he will take the best enlisted men the one or two or three in a hundred who yep. should be uh, platoon commanders, officers. And he wants to run them through this school at Fort Leavenworth, run by Omar Bradley. And Stimson, the Secretary of War, and Roosevelt, yep. the President, say no. And he said, okay, if I can't have that, I need that to win the war. And uh, if I'll leave if, if I can't have it. And he's probably bluffing, but it was just the genius of the guy. <laughs> the, 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 and of course, that officer, that 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 army officer school is still in existence. Yeah, amazing. It it is it is an extraordinary story, isn't it? And I think what what's interesting is is that you know it's 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 putting that operational level absolutely to the forefront. It's it's recognizing that that you can't fight, you can't do your tactical stuff if you can't work out your long chain. You know, if you haven't got the kind of backup. And it's working that out really, really, really early on. And, uh, and I just think it's absolutely, it, it's extraordinary how quickly the U.S. Army develops. And I think it is also amazing, that, you know, when one thinks that, you know, Congress is, is sanctioning the purchasing of 20,000 horses in March 1941. You know, it's just, it's got so much growing up to do. And yet the draft, the maneuvers, working out what can be done, kind of working out who's 
who are the good commanders and who are the ones to kind of keep their eye on and promote and who are the ones to get rid of at that very early stage. They're kind of getting their priorities right. I think that's the point. You know, you can work out weaponry later, but if you haven't got your basics right, the weaponry counts for nothing. And, you know, the, the other thing that was going along with this, and Marshall the rest of them didn't really have that much to do with it, but, but this huge sense of morale was developing through inter popular entertainment, music, films. Bob Hope. People like Bob Hope, the comedian. Uh, yeah. Who would, who would you know, spend a lot of the war in combat zones entertaining the troops. And there was this, you know, the cartoonists, the great American uh, cartoonists, Bill Malden and, and others yeah, were yeah. in Louisiana. And so you've got this culture of the war. You know, you have the, or, you know, the, for early movies about the draft of Abbott and Costello. And, you know, in that, in that movie, there's the, you know, the Andrews sisters, the bugle boy, right. you know, boogie woogie, bugle boy. And so you've got this country which has, it was driving the isolationists isolationist crazy in which popular culture was was bolstering this whole thing and right. these guys be, and, right. and Bob Hope's great thing was he learns really way before the war starts Hope knows he could show up in, in a front of a bunch of army or navy guys and he be the role he plays is he's the coward in front of all these heroes and he plays this role to the hilt all the way through the war and at one point <laughs> Hope it becomes a sort of symbol, but hope hope has got a he's going into combat zones in southern Italy and areas where there are huge numbers of wounded, and he goes in and, and he's entertaining these really badly wounded guys, some of whom won't live, and the other entertainers can't stand it; they're crying, they can, and he goes in and he's joking and 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 he's just doing everything else to help these guys who are really in terrible you know terrible terrible physical shape. And the, the one guy is writing about it for the New York, one of the New York papers, the New York Herald Tribune. It says, when the war is over, this guy will, Bob Hope will be one of the heroes. Well, the person writing the article was John Steinbeck, you know, the great, <laughs> the great writer. Yeah, yeah. And it was, it was almost like this moment where you say, wait a second, this war has, you know, you're, all of a sudden you've got all these people coming together and they're all sort mm. of, you know, on the side of good morale and, and as dreadful as combat was and as dreadful as the PTSD, which they didn't call that, was would be afterwards. It, it was still that everybody was sort of on one page. Yeah, I think, I, I mean, I just think that's so interesting because, you know, if you're talking about Nazi Germany, I mean, you get people to do do what you want because you're a militaristic totalitarian state and if you don't do it, you'll get shot. But 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 both the British and uh, and you know the canadians and dominion forces and, and obviously the united states they don't have that you know so you've got to kind of get this this conscript army you've got to get them to do what you want them to do you've got to uh, make these terrible sacrifices and you've you, you've got to get buy-in and, and how do you do that and and it's fascinating all the stuff about babel hyperstep but i also think it's really interesting about about how they kind of you know changed the look of the u.s army you know so the u.s army in 1939 1940 is still with those kind of sort of um, the felt scout hats, uh, um, Tommy helmets, the Brody helmet. It looks kind of old-fashioned. It looks from a different era. It doesn't look modern. And then suddenly you've got this change. You've got the M41 Parsons jacket coming in. You've got the M1 steel helmet. And I think the kind of the, the whole story of the M1 Parsons jacket, uh, which is trialled in 1940 with the Fifth uh, Division under General Major General Parsons, is really really interesting because they also consult the, the Esquire fashion desk. 
about this. Uh, and it's based, the design of it is based on a pre-war civilian wind cheater. You know, the kind of thing that you'd wear around the golf course. Yeah. Uh, and, and that is reflecting, of course, the fact that you've got a civilian army and they have, the, you know, they're not imbued with a heritage of regimental history and, you know, buttons and brass and kind of, you, you know, epaulettes and all the rest of it and, and gold braid. This, this, is, this is a bunch of civilians. So you want them to be practical and, and feel comfortable and, and not feel completely kind of fish out of water with the, the environment they suddenly find themselves in, even though obviously they are. So that look, that jacket, that, that, that kind of th the transformation of the look of the army is also about sort of saying, OK, this is something new. We're all in it together and we're all going to change together. We're all going to kind of evolve together. It's not something that's articulated as such, but it is a subtle kind of transformation as well. I mean, all those jackets that they produce in World War Two, the Americans, they're all they're all pretty much all based on civilian designs in their first conception. And I think that's utterly fascinating. Whereas you compare that, obviously, to a German tunic at the start of the war. It's all very kind of 19th century in style with its kind of pleats and very militaristic and all the rest of it. The whole point about Parsons jacket is it isn't very militaristic. You know, they're recognising that that. The GI of this new war is 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 a guy off the off the streets. You know, he's just an ordinary Joe. And you know, you can extend that to all different corners of the experience. And for example, yeah. food food was terribly terribly important. Yeah. And uh, Marshall took great uh, interest in the feeding of these troops. And if, a, and if if some guy, some private out in the middle of nowhere, wrote a letter to Marshall saying the food here is terrible. He would go right to the commander and say, "Wait a second, And the guy would be more specific, but he, but he would actually he would follow up on it. And uh, it was that kind of thing that, that made over time it a huge difference. They knew that they were going to I mean the idea of getting fresh vegetables and stuff to any cost and, and, and eggs as opposed to you know they had to go to powdered eggs in Europe right. Course, but, but but it was it was all part of a of a and getting the you know Marshall made sure the movie theaters went in and all this as soon as the yeah, movies yeah, went yeah. up you know yeah and you um, you know you can go to you can go to East Anglia in England now and you can still go to some of the um, you know the old airfields of the mighty eighth the eighth air force and yeah. there's still the kind of the old shed that was converted being converted in the war to a cinema yeah. you know because that's important yeah. and you 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 know I mean when when the uh, British troops were being transported by Americans to Sicily, they were absolutely gobsmacked to find there was ice cream on deck and Coca-Cola and all the rest of it. I mean, Coca-Cola was absolutely everywhere. Wherever the U.S. Army went, there was Coca-Cola. Uh, and I remember reading about General Oliver Leese, who was uh, commander of 8th Army in Italy in 1944. Uh, and he goes over to visit uh, Wayne Clark, you know, who's commander of the U.S. 5th Army. And Clark's got this very swanky caravan. And... Um, Lease goes into it and it's all kind of beautifully well appointed and everything. And the first thing, and he's got a fridge in his caravan. And Lease just cannot get over this. You know, just, just this amazing modernity that, that here's Mark Clark with a fridge in his own caravan. And he says, you know, would you like a Coca-Cola? And Lease goes, yeah, that would be marvellous. Thank you. And has a Coca-Cola with him, a chilled Coca-Cola in the afternoon in the kind of, you know, Italian sunshine. And he just thinks this is just beyond comprehension I mean but it's amazing but but of course morale is just so 
vital, you know, particularly when you, I mean, it's vital whatever walk of life, but it's particularly vital when you've got a large conscript army from a democratic nation. Uh, and, you know, the Brits need their cups of tea. Uh, and the Americans need their Hershey bars and Camel cigarettes and Coca-Cola and ice cream and stuff. And, and you know, I think that is all to the... You know, I, you know, historians have kind of sort of rubbished that sort of going, you know, they all they were soft compared to the kind of hard-nosed, hard-boiled Germans and all the rest of it. I just go, well, that's just genius of the kind of, you know, the high command of the US Army and George Marshall and all the rest of it leading the charge that they're looking after their guys. You know, I think that's just basic common sense and that applies to anything any business anything even if you haven't got good morale you, you've got no business you know what, what one of my favorite little tidbits about all this stuff with Marshall was at right right at the beginning of the drafting period he created something called the soldier's handbook which is which yes. has got a lot of interesting stuff in it about you know and it, ta it talks to them uh, in a way that no other army manual has ever talked to them in, in terms of why why they should obey certain orders and what the consequences are, but doing it in sure. such a way that, you know, it, 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 it explains why there are these orders and such. But the, the genius of the book, which was based on the Boy Scout manual, it was exactly, <laughs> it was a replica of the Boy Scout manual, even down to the trim size and the look of the cover. In the back of it, he's got a soldier's vocabulary. And what Mar and Marshall is listed as the editor of the book. I mean, he had his hand in the whole thing. In the back of it, he's giving these guys a slang. Right. He's, you know, over the hill for deserter. It's this chow is food. I mean, he's giving them this law, this long list, and he, he gives them a slang. Now, what 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 he's doing, which is so obvious to anyone who's ever even taken a poke at language, is that slang and jargon uh, create a cohort. Yeah. That's more powerful than one that yep. doesn't have its own language. Yeah, so, sure. So Suddenly you're part of a gang, aren't you? A special exclusive gang. That, right. And it also identifies, the, you know, it's, it goes right down to Kilroy was here. You know, that kind of thing right. with Americans. Just like the RAF had its own slang, which everybody, you know, knew, and the world knew about. Uh, uh, the, the RAF sort of aviation slang, which a lot of it transmitted uh, the American aviators and such. But but it was it was the GI slang that was, you know, all over the world. Yeah, amazing, amazing. Well, Paul, I think it's just fascinating. I'm really glad you did all this work because I'd sort of dipped into it a bit myself and this whole idea of the sort of the growth of the United States in the first first couple of years of the war, you know, and um, and how they developed, how how quickly they developed. But but your book really opened my eyes to a kind of to this to a whole different degree and I, I think it's absolutely fascinating and I do completely buy into your argument about morale um, or rather George Marshall's argument about morale I mean it's it's so vital and um, it's just fascinating stuff so thank you very much for kind of um, for coming on and do come on again please do thank you so much I'm glad you we this has been most fun most fun <laughs> great well thanks everyone for listening and cheerio